0: Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kines. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at the testaments.com where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at The Number Two Testaments on Facebook or Instagram.
1: Welcome to The Two Testaments, A Guided Journey Through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Kosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the covenant ritual at the end of Deuteronomy in chapters 27 through 30. And we're joined today by Dr. Melissa Ramos. Melissa
0: Ramos is Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Portland Seminary. She's the author of this book here, Ritual in Deuteronomy, The Performance of of doom Ooh. which is a great title, a great title. <laughs> it's published by uh, rutledge and we're going to hear a little bit more about that title in a second here she's also expanded her research in ritual editing a volume titled new perspectives on ritual in the biblical world with laura quick and, and since we have with us uh, ronnie an expert on ritual mm-hmm. uh today i was thinking a little bit about the rituals in our podcast. You know, we're coming towards the end of a second season. We have a lot of two testaments, Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And these rituals kind of develop. Like, when you engage with other people, rituals just become a part of that engagement. I was thinking, for example, of the way that we've developed this kind of ritual at the end of every episode of asking for your best five-star rating Mm -hmm. on Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, And... One of the things that happens with rituals is they become, they just become rote, right? You lose the meaning of the ritual as you do them over and over and over again. In fact, some of our listeners might actually just skip past that part of the Mm -hmm. podcast or turn the podcast off uh, when when that part comes up. And, uh, you know, that's fine, especially if they've already given us their five-star rating. Mm -hmm. In fact, we just got a great five-star rating recently. Uh, It says two words, duct tape, wallet. Wallet. Five stars. Nice. (laughs) Though I think duct tape might actually be two words in itself, so it's really three words. But I'm not going to quibble with a five-star rating, of
1: course. Sure, sure. Um,
0: But there's another side of rituals, which is – and this came out when we had that conversation with John Levinson about Deuteronomy 6 – that rituals, they can become just formalized and rote and actually lead us away from meaning. But on the other side, as we participate in rituals, they can actually – guide us towards deeper understanding. And that's what uh, Levinson was talking about for the Shema uh, in Deuteronomy 6. So, so to that end, I was also thinking about our, our ritual at the end of the episodes of asking for five-star ratings and how there is a kind of deeper meaning there in that it's reflecting a relationship that we have with our listeners. Hey, listeners. Uh, <laughs> um, in that we, <laughs> we reflect this relationship and say, hey, we're doing this for you. Uh, And you can help us out by telling other people about Mm -hmm. the show because if it's helped you out, then maybe it'll help them out as well. So anyway, there's just this – as I was thinking about this, it made me more and more excited about this conversation we're about to have because Ritual has these, these dynamics and tension of being formalized but on the other hand pointing towards deeper and more powerful meaning. So.
1: And embodying those meanings with us
0: too, yeah right? that's yeah. true yeah yeah and coming out in community and maybe right. even furthering community uh so anyway the, all of that is to say i'm really excited for this conversation with you melissa so thanks for
1: coming on the show and talking with us today
2: well thanks for inviting me i'm excited to be here
1: now melissa what sparked your interest in deuteronomy and in the covenant ritual in particular to begin with like what got you interested in this part of deuteronomy
2: I think that's a really fair question because honestly, when I've talked to most people about Deuteronomy, they they tend to think of it as a dry, barring book of outdated laws. And I would say that in a, a lot of my conversations initially with students and that kind of thing, Deuteronomy is no one's like favorite book, with the exception of maybe uh, other other guests who are talking about Deuteronomy on <laughs> your podcast. But I, I view it as this fascinating book, and it, you know, it's a set of the final speeches of Moses before he dies. Like, you know, what did Moses have to say before his death? right Deuteronomy. Is the book where you find that. And this uh, framework is a set of speeches. It's kind of a, a preacher's book in a sense too. You know, this uh, this uh, this framework of one speech after another. Uh, and, and in my work, I look at it also as a little bit into a, like a window into the liturgical life of ancient Israel. So the book explores, uh, my book and my work, uh, explores Deuteronomy from the field of ritual studies. And so things like the Shema prayer sounds like you've already talked about that covenant enactment instructions this long list of curses and blessings at the end what's happening there and uh, there is kind of a funny story about this too in my PhD program at UCLA um, I took a seminar on the Deuteronomistic history and actually wrote a final paper where I was exploring Deuteronomy and you know some of the treaty stuff a lot of people write about that because there's uh, some some interesting commonality between Deuteronomy and international treaties from the time period but while I was Was in the process of writing this paper or studying these kind of commonalities, I noticed that uh, the Deut- both Deuteronomy and the international treaties from this period, they weren't just texts, but they were performances with this public mm-hmm. oath and accompanying ritual actions. So, so what remains to us kind of uh, as a result of history is the texts. But the texts represent far more than describal activity, in my view. There's ritual activity behind this. So while I was looking into these ritual texts from Mesopotamia, that was part of my study, um, and I actually write about this in the preface of the book, I was proctoring an exam at UCLA (laughs) as a doctoral student. And and I think um, those of us who teach, we know that the proctoring exams is not a super exciting moment. But, uh, but I had this epiphany as I was coming across a segment of ritual texts, um, a series called the Sherpu series. And there's a curse sequence in there with some very striking parallels to Deuteronomy 27. And I was proctoring this exam, was, was just stunned by what I found there. And, and I'm not sure what happened, you know, for that part of the exam, hope no one was cheating. <laughs> I hope there wasn't any business. I was just enraptured with what I found there. So
1: Yeah. And why do you call it the performance of doom?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I, 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 and that's really a, it's a reference to the uh, the performance of the ritual covenant in the end, including this very long, elaborate list of curses at the end. So there's a sense in which once you perform this thing, it's out there. The curses are out there. You have sort of cursed yourself should you violate the mm-hmm. uh, the terms of the oath and the agreement. So it's a function of of um, it, it's sort of indexing the ritual performance element, but also this long list of curses, which is you know not the only thing I talk about in the book, but maybe one of the more entertaining things I talk about in the book. <laughs>
1: I feel like I can imagine some people saying well like let's not say that part shh, to the curses you don't that just of, yeah, let's just mumble through a few of these verses <laughs> here that in a point.
2: service you know <laughs> right.
0: Yes oh that's true that's a good point. Um, now um, we're looking at uh, four chapters here from chapter 27 to chapter 30 and before we get into the details, could you just give us a kind of brief overview of what we encounter in these chapters?
2: Um, so so here what we find in these chapters is, this is kind of another one of the speeches of Moses. And as we can kind of recall the, the broader narrative of, of Deuteronomy, they're on the plains of Moab and they're about to step into the promised land. And uh, there are instructions for what to do once they enter the promised land. So there's a gathered assembly and Moses has everyone there um, and and they're all listening. And, and one of the more striking elements of, of this is, in the um, in the ritual enactment itself, they're they're called to set up large stones, cover them with plaster, and inscribe them with all the words of this Torah. Offering sacrifices and um, on an altar of unhewn stones. It's a very specific and detailed set of um, almost like a script for enactment. And, uh, and then you have um, all of this taking place in the city of Shechem, which is modern-day Nablus, but um, the city of Shechem has distinctive topography of two mountaintops. There's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and kind of the city down in beneath that. And so part of the script involves using the mountains, using the topography. So, um, so, so the instructions involve sending certain persons up on the mountains who will recite out loud, you know, part of what's going on in this covenant enactment ritual. And so this also involves reading aloud a lengthy set of some blessings, but mostly curses. And there's this antiphonal response that people are supposed to give with amen, you know, at certain portions. So, so that's what's going on there um, in 27. And that comprises all through kind of 28. In, in 29, I, I find this to be more of a sort of a, 29, 30, more like motivational speeches by <laughs> mo, by Moses. And this kind of brings us back into the broader framework of being on the plains of Moab and, uh, and really emphasize the importance of making this covenant the importance there's this somber seriousness to stepping into the actual enactment it's like this what i call in the book a a tear in the fabric of the future so once you've done this thing there's no getting out of it there's no backing out Um, and so there's this call to sort of choose life. And this is in a part of uh, chapter 29, choose life so that you and your descendants will live, that kind of thing. And so um, that's kind of just super basic contents of what we find in these chapters.
0: Yeah. I love that phrase, tear in the fabric of the future. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? How is this tearing the fabric of the future, what's happening in these chapters?
2: In a strange sort of way, nothing is happening in these chapters except that Moses is giving instructions for what to do, um, and then, uh-huh. as we know later on in Joshua, these get these are, are are actually enacted once there is the narrative about the crossing. So nothing nothing actually happens in these chapters. <laughs> I like, it's good to kind of remind ourselves, um, but 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 what could happen, or the potential of what, or what should happen in anticipation of what will happen in chapters later on. Um, I, I, the reason I phrase it sort of tear in the fabric of the future is. Um, is also kind of an aside and, and a note to other kinds of treaty language that we find um, from Israel's neighbors in the sort of broader ancient West Asia or ancient Near East in that time, that, um, that making making an oath or a covenant was not just making a promise. There was uh, this this part of this act of, of conditional self-cursing. So, so you make a promise, but it's binding by, by nature of the fact that you've cursed yourself should you violate its terms. And kind of connects with um, just sort of the, the general cultural framework of how to make a solemn or binding promise in this time period. So that's why I use the phrase.
0: Right. So the the future is the potential curse that could come upon you if you violate the covenant that you make.
2: Or blessings that we find in or Deuteronomy Bl- 27 right. and 28.
0: So you're bringing the future onto yourself as you make this covenant, this covenant present commitment has all of these future
1: implications exactly yeah Uh, now how do you see the covenant ritual fitting into the book of deuteronomy as a whole sure to
2: me it seems like the covenant ritual is really the apex it's like the grand finale of the book Uh, Some scholars tend to view this as an addition to the book, uh, to what they view as as maybe legal segments that might have been written earlier. But this seems less likely to me given that the covenant ritual and its curses have very strong parallels with treaty texts, ritual texts, other inscriptions that come from the late Iron II period. So I don't really get into the weeds in my book about what is dated precisely when. I have one chapter that kind of gets into that. But it seems to me... That the covenant ritual is part of the entire frame of the book on some level. Mm -hmm. And it gives a certain shape and meaning to the legal material that you find in chapters 5 through 11 and 12 through 26. So, in this way, keeping the commandments is connected. It's an integral part of the biblical covenant itself. These two are interconnected, they're intertwined in Deuteronomy. And they also are in the treaties, in the broader culture, in the neighboring regions found around ancient Israel and Judah. So, in my mind, they belong together.
0: Uh huh. Right. So, this is what reinforces the giving of the law is the this, yes. this ritual at the end. It's kind of the I don't know exclamation point at the end of of Deuteronomy as a sentence saying, "All right, well, we've laid out these laws. You got to keep them because this is what's at stake." Would that be a fair way of thinking about it? I think
2: that's a fair way of thinking about it, and and I would nuance it further a little bit to say that it's also part of just formation of the identity of the people of God. Um, so the, the 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 covenant people of God is kind of what what identifies them on some level as they're about to enter into this land, and um, there is a sort of this existential threat of the community's dissolution or its identity's dissolution. Um, Once they enter into the land, if you're kind of in, you know, in the narrative framework, along with the readership, reading this in that way. Um, And so both the commandments and following the commandments are a way of enacting that identity. And the covenant is part of formation of the community's identity.
1: Yeah, that's
0: great. So what for you is the most difficult thing to understand about these chapters?
2: I mean, I think it's the really basic question of why are there curses in the Bible? You now why are, why are these curses included in scripture? Would we feel more comfortable with Deuteronomy if these weren't there? Maybe on some level, yeah. you know, even though I've been studying these for a long, long time, I might feel more comfortable if these weren't there. Um, but to understand the answer, or at least to start to answer that, it does help us to, to know a little more about the socio-historical context in the Levant in the ancient world around oaths and binding promises um, and understanding these kinds of cultural forms, expressions, language, I think it helps us understand how people make binding promises in that time period and what was the kinds of things that were expected in this kind of a formal oath. Or a covenant yeah. but the curses are hard no matter what you do
1: now the passage begins in chapter 27 verses 1 through 10 with instructions for the first thing that the israelites are to do when they enter into the promised land so they have to write the entire law on these large stones cut that are covered with plaster and then they make an altar of unhewn stones and offer sacrifices to the lord what's the significance of these actions using the stones in this way
2: in my mind, this is one of the, the, the most intriguing aspects of the ritual covenant. I think it's really fun to consider this question, keeping in mind that literacy was not widespread in the ancient Levant. In, in, no, no matter when you date this. And so the people are commanded to erect large stones, large ones, not small ones, uh, cover them with plaster, which makes them a bit more ephemeral. They're not really it's not a lapidary inscription on stone in that way. And then to write on them, in Hebrew, it says, or all the words of this law. So this is not really an administrative record of some sort. It's not just a copy of the law or something. This is a big, giant public display made for the enactment of the covenant. And it's considered one of the required elements of ratifying or putting the covenant into action. So, So what is this? And what do we imagine was actually inscribed on it? I think those are fun questions to ask. Is it all the laws from the, all the prior chapters? Is it maybe just the Ten Commandments? Is that some shorthand form of it? If it's if it's all the words of the Torah, they're going to be setting up like a lot of stones. <laughs> yeah, big project. Uh, maybe it's the display of the blessings and curses that are read orally as part of the enactment. I mean, that would be expected given the kinds of things we have in the material record from the Levant. That would be that's what we find in in compara- comparable kinds of
0: materials. So again, so this just well, to say, so what you're suggesting there is other cultures did this kind of thing. They would put up stones and put plaster on them, then write things.
2: Well, it, the plaster is a different kind of element, and that's a little yeah. different from what we find, for example, in, in an international treaties. But for example, like the Der Allah text, like there are certain kinds of plaster texts we do find um, from from um, from the Levant that are kind of from the Iron II period, and that's kind of fun and interesting to think, you know, maybe it had red ink on it or something like some of the other things that we find. Um, but but you know, again, there are parallels with international treaties and and with ritual texts. I'll say more about those in a bit, but. Um those were also written on large stones or displayed clay tablets with you know with holes in them for being placed in the temple. So these were meant to be displayed in public places with religious significance places like temples. Um so they're not really administrative reference. It seems to me that the purpose for the stones in Deuteronomy uh, like the display tablets of treaties and, and that kind of thing, was to serve as a symbol of the covenant, uh, the promises that are made, that, and a symbol even of the curses that will fall on those who violate the oath and its its commandments, the agreements that are made. It's, it's a symbol of this actual ritual enactment that takes place. What's said and what's done is a reminder to the people. Um, in the case of Deuteronomy, it also seems, in my view, like it serves as a symbol of... The people's identity as the covenant people of god it's it's a monument that's erected in order to commemorate the ritual performance the performance of what makes the people of god distinctive which is following the commandments um you also mentioned the sacrifices that are offered um, this is kind of a, a celebratory ritual connected with covenant enactment it's, it's like a celebratory meal with a party that has good food, that kind of thing. So I, I think those are fun things to consider as, as po- what exactly was involved in, in making a covenant.
0: Right. And, and all of that makes this ritual more concrete, more real, draws the people into it in various ways. This is 27 verse 9 says, This very day you have become the people of the Lord your God. And I found that striking because there are other really significant days in the history of Israel, even up to this point. So what is it about this day that makes the people the people of the Lord, uh, as opposed to some other days we might imagine, like the law being given on Sinai or the people being brought out of Egypt? What do you think is going on there?
2: I love this question because the word today, um, or as you kind of, as you put it, this very day, uh, the, the the phrase Hayom, it occurs a number of times in Deuteronomy. It's one of the sort of distinctive language elements of the book. Mm-hmm. And to me, this this phrasing gives the book a sense of urgency, a sense of energy and like forward movement, excitement about what's happening. Um, Sort of like in chapter 30 where Moses says, Today I set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God. In my view, it's a covenant. It's the ritual enactment itself that makes the day special. And in my view, Deuteronomy as a whole, as a book, emphasizes human agency and human power within the decisions that we make to shape our own future. Not every book in the Bible has this emphasis. I mean, think it's very different, for example, from the book of Job that emphasizes divine sovereignty more. So while other traditions of the Bible present narratives about things that happen to people or that are just sort of told in a narrative frame, maybe like you like you mentioned, the exodus or maybe the promise to, to Abraham, something like that. Deuteronomy presents this sort of stark choice for the people to make. Um, it's a decisive action that has to be taken as a way of shaping their own identity in their future
1: right now in verses 11 to 26 of chapter 27 moses says that the next thing that the people are supposed to do they're supposed to split up right so six tribes on mount gerizim uh, they go up there to receive the blessings and six on mount Ebal to receive the curses and then the levites are to declare a series of curses on anyone who commits a number of offenses now, is there any significance, you think, as to which tribes, you know, are chosen to go up one mountain and receive the blessings and why the other set of tribes go up the other mountain to receive the curses? Does it matter or is, there, is, is this intentional?
2: I mean, the Bible is full of symbolism everywhere, right? We have to at least look for it, even if it wasn't there intentionally. <laughs> it, it does seem like, yes, there is some kind of symbolism, but I, I, honestly, I'm not sure this is completely clear. It's good to notice that the the tribes who received the blessings are primarily Southern tribes, except for Issachar and Manasseh, while the tribes who received the curses, they're Northern tribes and Transjordan tribes on the East side of the Jordan. So, it seems to anticipate later events that are coming in the biblical narrative about the destruction and the exile, especially of the Northern Empire during the time of the divided monarchy, the invasion and destruction in the north by the neo Assyrian Empire. And the biblical text attributes this to idolatry, to worship of other deities, and, and also things like social injustice, so the rich oppressing the poor in those regions. So it probably is some kind of a foreshadowing of what will come hmm. um, in, in later texts, especially in Second
1: Kings. Now, how is this supposed to actually work like in the, <laughs> in the narrative, right? So if they're up on the mountains, I mean, how are, you know, the Levites are pronouncing these uh, blessings and curses, how, is, is anyone supposed to hear them?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a fun question um, because <laughs> behind the question really is the broader issue about the historicity of this kind of a ritual enactment, not just Deuteronomy 27, but other kinds of ritual material we find in the Bible. So so is this really a script? Is this exactly how it was or should have been enacted? And while it does kind of read like a script, it is part of, you know, just the, the biblical literature which contain, contains symbolic action, symbolic movement. And, some might contend that this is how it was done or it represents history. I tend to think of the mountains as, as symbols and Deuteronomy 27 likely is an anthology of sorts of different covenant enactments or enactment renewals, rituals that were performed very likely in Jerusalem. But it's an interesting question that Shechem is named very specifically because maybe it also preserves a Northern tradition of an oath ritual that was performed in Shechem. Um, especially because you have things like, you know, the place of the oath um, that's mentioned in, in in the book of Judges, associated with the city of Shechem, and of course, a very sort of popular thing in scholarship right now is the northern hypothesis of Deuteronomy's origins in the northern kingdom, um, and that's kind of that's really come up again in the last five ten years. So, you know, maybe what's behind the question is is wondering on what level we take this as. An accurate representation of events that happened or took place. Um, Deuteronomy is a set of instructions by Moses. And so, again, in Deuteronomy, nothing actually takes place. But in Joshua 8, this is carried out. And so the question obtains.
0: Yeah. And when it's carried out in Joshua 8, there's a little bit of an adaptation. It seems like maybe there. Reflecting on the practicality of this, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> they, they don't have the tribes actually go up on the top of the two mountains. They just stand before the two mountains. So they're standing there at the ark that Joshua builds, but they stand in front of the two mountains, and so it's kind. Of, they're still connected to the two mountains, right. but in a way that they can still hear what's being said. So maybe there, there's a way in which. They're saying, okay, how is this going to work? All right, this is how we'll make it work. We're still going to connect to the ritual. That just seems in a way that, fair.
2: That seems fair. Or yeah. maybe, it was meant maybe going up the mountain meant going two steps up the mountain. You know, maybe that's what it meant. Right. There yeah. you go. Right.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, later in chapter 27, we get this list of curses. Uh, and so the Levites start in verse 15 and then through the end of the chapter, um giving curses for all of these different actions, um, but the actions provide far from a comprehensive ethical vision. So a couple of the things that are cursed are, are actions that the Ten Commandments also says that people shouldn't do, things like idolatry or not honoring your father and mother. But then others seem much more obscure, like misleading a blind person or lying with someone's mother-in-law or with your own mother-in-law, I guess. Uh, so. Why are these particular actions singled out here and given in this list of curses?
2: Yeah, and this is a perfect tee up to talk about my work, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, they're not random at all, in my view. Okay. In fact, every one of these curses in Deuteronomy 27, with a couple of exceptions, aligns in theme and in sequence and in some places with specific language. Um, with the same sequence of curses in the Mesopotamian ritual text that's called Shurpu in the second tablet. So I present this in chapter three of my book. And um, so while these may look random, and in some sense, thematically, they are, they seem to be coming from some stock list of curses kept in the same order, even from you know one cultural expression to another, Um in one formulation to another. The list of curses in Deuteronomy 27, it's more expansive um, than its counterpart and kind of adds a couple of things uh, to what we find in Sherpu. The one exception that um, that is added in 27, which we don't find in Sherpu, is the curse on those who oppress the vulnerable, the, the hmm. misleading the blind um, and oppressing the orphan and the widow. You don't find this in Sherpu. Um, those kinds of sentiments are expressed in other kinds of legal literature in the ancient Near East, but not in this curse sequence from Sherpu. So I think that's a really fun observation that that's the one thing that seems to be a distinctive addition. So while it might seem like a random list, in my view, after looking at the the, the curses that we find in the ritual text, uh, ritual series Sherpu, it's not actually random. It's a standard list that seems to have circulated. Maybe we can say it was part of the cultural coinage of the Iron Two period, maybe earlier.
0: Uh, right, so if you were going to have a list of curses, that reinforced a covenant, this is the kind of list of curses that you would give. And what's the date of Sherpu?
2: Well, Sherp, that's a really hard question to answer because it existed (laughs) for a long, long time. It's a second millennium text. It's a first millennium text, and it existed in various different forms. It seems probably kind of like another text called Moklu. There's a little bit, it's easier to find literature on that. Sherpu is difficult to find literature on, um, but it was definitely being used in the Iron II period also um, and used in the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So that maybe is the cultural connection
0: there.
1: Okay, great. Now, in Deuteronomy 28, then, starts with 14 verses of blessings for obedience to the Lord's commandments. So, for example, in verse 3, we read, Blessed shall you be uh, in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Now, we're going to get to all the, the large number of curses that overwhelm the blessings. But before we get to the curses, we probably shouldn't overlook the blessings, because they are there. Yeah. What do you think we can learn from the blessings
2: well, I'm glad you brought that up because the blessings are this fun and distinctive element in the Deuteronomy covenant oath vis-a-vis other kinds of oath expressions from, the ancient, from ancient West Asia and ancient East. You don't find blessings in international treaties. You don't find blessings in the ritual texts that I compare it with just in Deuteronomy. So that suggests that they're very important to the book. Um, the most well-known treaties from Assyria, like the Succession Treaty of Esarhaddon, were ones that forced an, a loyalty oath on those who were conquered and subdued by its armies. So it's not really what you would think of as a happy oath. Um, the, the, the empire ruled by fear and maintained order, put down rebellions and, and dissension by making conquered nations make the oath and, and, and send um, emissaries to, to renew it every year. And so it's essentially a ritual of self-cursing. It's, it's conditional self-cursing. Um, so, for example, if you don't stay loyal to this particular prince in a transition of power, I will, you know, if I violate that, I will bring this long list of curses down to myself and my family. It's very fear-orienting. It's terrorizing in a sense.
0: So does that mean that, that in Deuteronomy, the relationship with God reflected in this covenant is envisioned as different? in some significant way?
2: I think so. I mean, in some ways, it, it, it reminds me of what we might call uh, parody treaties that we see in, in, in Hittite treaties from the second millennium. Um, and it's, it's different in some way, especially because we're not talking about um, two sort of human entities. We're talking about God and a human entity, which is sort of Israel. So that's very different in and of itself. Um, but, but the inclusion of the blessings makes it distinctive um, that, that you're going to get something good out of this instead of you know, just avoid all these bad things. So I think right, that's something right. that's, that's really emphasized by the fact that this is included at all, because it's unexpected is what I would say, um, given sort of the cultural framework of how to make a, a covenant oath or a, a curse or, you know, a, that kind of a promise it's all just a list of curses. You're not expecting blessings at all. So that we even get a few is like this amazing thing.
0: Yeah, well, then I'm glad we didn't overlook the blessings, (laughs) but they are easy to overlook because they are far outnumbered by the curses, which stretch from 2815 to the end of this very long chapter in verse 68. So that is 54 verses full of curses Uh, and the curses begin by reversing those Beautiful blessings that we just discussed. So, for example, we hear in verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Exactly the opposite of what Ronnie just read. But they don't stop there. They keep on going and they go into much more detail. And some of this detail is disturbingly gory, such as the description of how the people will eat their own children while they're besieged by an enemy in verses 53 to 57. The question is why this gross imbalance. Gross. Yes. yes. yes, mm-hmm. yes, that, yes. Was that was intentional. This yes. gross imbalance between oh. the blessings and the curses.
2: Gross imbalance. I love it. Perfect description. (laughs) Um, You know, as I've been talking about already, Deuteronomy seems to follow this pattern of covenant oath that prevailed in ancient West Asia. And it's, it's a cultural product of its time. And for that reason includes primarily curses, long lists of curses and and some of these really are disturbing and gory, like starving to death because of crop failure, natural disasters, you know, it's almost like Donner party kind of stuff, awful things. And yet, as I've said before, it's good to keep in mind that including any blessings at all is breaking this broader cultural pattern. Um, I think it's also good to kind of think through in terms of um, the way that this text might have been written, to think through stock formulaic language for cursing in the Levant that seems to have circulated. We don't actually have very much for blessings. So maybe they just didn't have a lot to draw on. And I think that yeah. might be part of why you find um some of the curses undone, as you said it, but from a sort of a scribal perspective, they're kind of just taking a curse and then like creating the opposite of it. So they don't have to come up with new material, so to speak. Uh So that Uh might partly be what's going on from a mechanical perspective. Um, So it's
0: backwards to the way that we encounter it. So they have the curses, but for the blessings, they reverse the curses and make blessings.
2: I could, I I think that that could be what's going on. And so, you know, What a wonderful and positive development but (laughs) we have some blessings you know and and maybe they should have expanded them you know maybe that's that's something we can speculate about maybe they could have or maybe in some other document that wasn't included in the bible you know maybe there were at some point more more blessings but um we have what we have we and i guess we really need to be grateful for those
0: yeah so um as you've discussed this seems like this is fairly standard fare in ancient covenant rituals, these long lists of curses. But do we see some kind of correspondence with aspects of Israel's actual history here? So it's not just stock language, but it actually has Israel's experience as a nation in mind in some way?
2: Sure, I mean, I think, you know, some scholars have have speculated about that. Are some of these verses um, especially about threats of exile and that kind of thing. Are these a reference to the uh, the coming fall of Samaria in the in the biblical narrative that's going to unfold, the exile of Judah two events that will be related in later chapters, uh, Joshua through Kings, Deuteronomistic history. On the other hand, I think it's 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 not wrong to also just observe that the threat of exile was kind of a perpetual threat in the ancient world. Um, The threat of exile was kind of always lingering in the background, the threat of natural disasters, crop failure, starvation, you know, political defeat, being invaded. These are kind of like perennial forms of human misery and suffering. And these are things that have ongoing reference in the world today.
1: Deuteronomy 29 uh, develops a similar theme as the curses in chapter 28 threatening destruction for those who turn from the Lord, though it doesn't seem to use the same curse language. What does this chapter add in particular?
2: It, it, yeah, this is a great question because we've, you know, it, it, the instructions have just sort of completed in 28. Here's all the curses that you read out loud as part of the enactment. And then suddenly in 29, it looks like, wait, are we doing the enactment all over again? But, but what seems to be happening there, in, in my mind, this chapter adds this element of motivational speech from the perspective of the Bible as literature, it brings us back to the overarching story and narrative um, that we st- we started out with in uh, beginning four chapters of Deuteronomy's story of ancient Israel. And Moses' speech here reminds the people of their miraculous deliverance over and over during the period of the desert wandering, that kind of thing. So it's like setting up the covenant and placing it in a sort of the broader history or trajectory of the story. Um, and it reiterates that the covenant is It's not with the Exodus generation, but those who are gathered on this day. So the chapter then has the feeling of a renewed relevance for each successive generation who hears the chapter. Like each faith community who hears these words is then included in the call to follow the covenant. And there are more curses listed, but they seem to be more of a narrative style and don't really follow the typical syntax patterns that we think of in terms of stock formulaic curses or lists of curses, anthologies of curses we find in other kinds of literature or ritual texts. So there's this motivational, historical element, all these different components going on in 29 and a little bit in 32.
1: Now, after all the curses and threats, this section is going to end with hope. Uh, in chapter uh, 30. The Lord promises to restore the people when they turn back to him, or maybe if they turn back to him. We were talking a little bit about this off air in verses 1 to 10. How does this compare to what we know of ancient Near Eastern rituals? I think
2: it's... It is important to emphasize, so I'm glad you brought this up, because if, if we don't have this, then Deuteronomy might have ended on a very depressing note, you know, in chapter 20, what if it just ended there? How depressing. The element of hope and, 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 and a sense of purpose to the curses, uh, the curses seem to serve the purpose of inflicting enough misery to bring the people back to God when they violated the covenant. That seems to be how they are framed in these chapters. Um, Deuteronomy on the whole assumes, the book just assumes that the people are going to violate the covenant and then bring these curses on themselves. It's like, this is what will happen and here's what will happen next. So addressing this up front to me feels very transparent and honest, even if it feels a little bit difficult. And then ending on a hopeful note sets the tone for the end of the book. It reminds the people that they're tasked with making good choices and that it's up to them. I do also want to just address um, quickly the, the ancient Near Eastern uh, material. I find it really interesting that one of the well-known treaties, uh, the Succession Treaty of Esarhaddon, Haddon, directly forbids performing a ritual to undo the oath. It says mm. something like, don't do this and that action, don't think or don't perform a ritual to revoke or undo the oath. Like, that's part of the forbidden action in the treaty. And so this speaks directly to the rituals that were performed in order to remove negative effects or, or uh, you know problems, health problems, you know, life problems that come from a curse that's violated. And in fact, the ritual series, the two series that I examine in my book, Maklu and Sherpu, but especially Sherpu, they are rituals performed in certain scenarios to undo or reverse the effects of an oath. So maybe this is exactly the kind of thing that the Succession Treaty is talking about. Um, Reversing an oath in Mesopotamian culture, at least, can be done, it seems, by performing a ritual to to sort of revoke it. Now, Deuteronomy 29 is interesting, too, because it has this little verse in it in uh, 29.19 that says, those who hear the words of this oath and bless themselves, thinking we're safe enough to go on our own stubborn ways. You know, it, it seems possible that this blessing themselves uh, this phrase, don't you know, thinking to themselves, blessing themselves, it might be a reference to some kind of ritual that someone would perform in order to undo the covenant or protect mm. themselves from the curse. But Deuteronomy insists that that's not going to work. Like that's not an option <laughs> for you. Right? So it kind of just gets nip that right in the bud. Uh, so I, so there are these uh, sort of ritual corollaries
0: that are fun. Well, of. you can't do it. You can't do it to yourself. But chapter thirty seems to suggest God can God can come in and reverse all of these curses that have been laid out here, which is a fascinating feature mm-hmm. of this text. But how does that actually happen? In the question that you know we were debating beforehand mm-hmm. is you know is it envisioned as the people doing something that then initiates God to do something, or is it God's initial? Um, motivation, And it is true. Chapter 30, verse one says when all these things have happened and you've had all these curses, the NRSV says, if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. But the Hebrew doesn't actually have that word if in it. Okay. Uh, so it's just the Vav and then the verb. Uh, so. Well, how do you see this working? What is what's being envisioned here as this like great turnaround in the nation in chapter 30 and the relationship between human action and God God's action in that?
2: Certainly it seems to emphasize that God needs to do some kind of an action. And maybe it goes back to the verse that I just mentioned like that's not going to work something else has to happen. Um, it does mention also things sort of like repentance or turning, those kinds of things are mentioned. It seems to me, though, overall, Deuteronomy is a book that that places its emphasis on human action while keeping in mind that you're making a covenant with God on that level, right? So so there is something that God has to do in order to pardon or forgive them, Um and it does sort of seem to have this anticipatory foreshadowing effect of that happening also. And so maybe some of this anticipation in these sort of framework chapters, I'm thinking of 29 and 30 here, that um, that do connect to sort of the overall framework of not just Deuteronomy, but the Deuteronomistic history as a whole, meaning Joshua through Kings, um, and, and the anticipation of things like the destruction of the Northern Empire, the destruction and exile, uh, destruction of Jerusalem and exile of the people. And maybe it anticipates even forward from that um, to to the return to Zion that that that, I, that is maybe also anticipated in some of that also. So I think all of those things are probably embedded within Deuteronomy because it's a book that continued to be edited well into the Persian period and beyond. And we can see that for sure in um, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, Deuteronomy is one of the um, uh, most... Uh, most frequently cited chapters in the in, in, most frequently cited books in in the Dead Sea Scrolls so they were important in that time period too um, and maybe these perennial questions kind of uh, connect with this idea of anticipatory future hope so it seems to me like it's some kind of combination of both when people do something God does something even if it's not spelled out exactly what that is.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Deuteronomy is also cited in the New Testament a good bit. And Mm -hmm. and Ronnie, as our resident Romans expert uh, in this conversation here, I actually had a question for you because Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 says, Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you. And that seems to contradict (laughs) Paul's view of the law, which sees the laws convicting people of sin because they're unable to obey it. So how would you hold these two things together? Because Paul does engage with Deuteronomy. Yes, he, yeah. he
1: cites this passage actually right? right in, Deuter- in Romans chapter 10. But I think before I would get to Paul, I would first look at in Deuteronomy itself, which, yeah, here in Deuteronomy... Uh, Uh, Thirty, where he says it's not too far or anything like that. This seems kind of optimistic. Yeah, Yeah. it seems like (laughs) Moses is optimistic. Yeah, if you really want to, you can. And actually, that is how some other uh, Jews from the Second Temple period interpreted and appropriated that text. Mm -hmm. So like Ben Sira, for instance, does this. He'll uh, go there and say, see here, this indicates that human beings, uh, they know God's commandment. God's command is imminent. It's near to them. And therefore, they're able to do what God expects of them. There's moral responsibility and culpability because humans are endowed with this ability to do what God requires. So that is one one view, one way that Jews of Paul's day interpreted it. Um, But one thing I'll I'll note is in Deuteronomy 31 is that kind of, if it's optimism in Deuteronomy 30... (laughs) Uh, God, maybe, I don't know if God is kind of adjusting Moses's, um, <laughs> you know, optimism in uh, human potential. Um, he says in verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, soon you will lie down with your ancestors because Moses is going to die. Then this people will begin to prostitute themselves to the foreign gods in their midst, the gods of the land into which they are going. They will forsake me, breaking my covenant that I have made uh, with them. My anger will be kindled against them in that day. I will forsake them and hide my face. Um, so my point, and you, can, you can keep reading, and there's a kind of like, okay, so a tempering maybe of yeah. what Moses had initially uh, said. Maybe God is kind of saying, well... Uh, this isn't going to turn out so well for the people of israel so i, I think paul is not alone in seeing that uh pessimism right. i think he's right in line with what we find in deuteronomy here um but the other thing i think if you go to romans uh 10 when paul cites from this passage in romans 10 verse 5 he says moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them that's he saying from leviticus 18. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. So here's Paul's interpretation. Um, uh, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. Again, that's Deuteronomy 30. Uh, That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Uh, Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, and, and so I think what Paul is doing, and actually we talked to Ross Wagner about this when we talked about the, in our episode on Romans 9 through 11. Yeah. And he thinks that there's not simply a contrast between the righteousness from the, the law that Moses talks about, Leviticus, the one who does these things will live by them, and then the righteousness from faith. He thinks, if, if I'm remembering him rightly, and our listeners can go back and take a look to, to see, but he thinks that the righteousness from faith is how one does the law, is how the law becomes fulfilled. Okay. Uh, and so while human beings are kind of not able to do the law, right, for Moses, the law is not a pathway to righteousness, it still nevertheless needs to be fulfilled, but it's done so through what, for Paul, God God's actions not our human actions, but what God has done through Christ and the death and resurrection with the human response of faith is the way that the law is fulfilled. Now, I'll also say that if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, uh, when, when Paul says that the righteousness of faith says, right, do not say it is too high or too far, When you go back to deuteronomy 30 that's actually moses saying that Mm -hmm. right yeah Uh, (laughs) so i wonder if paul almost sees a little tension there between what moses says in deuteronomy 30 and 31 and if he's like you know what maybe this is not really about the law this part here the commandment here but this is about something else and and that Mm -hmm. something else is for paul the gospel that he proclaims Mm -hmm. So I wonder if Paul sees a little bit of tension. So he sees the
0: tension. He's like, well, I'm going to resolve that in my understanding of God's gospel work in Christ. Right, the, right. That's the that, way to resolve That's my guess. And
1: that takes into account, I think, for Paul, the negativity that we find coming in Deuteronomy 31. Okay. Right. And yeah. I think what you find in the prophetic tradition that is a constant critique of Israel's inability to keep, keep the law, keep the covenant.
0: Great. All yeah. right. Thanks, Ronnie. All right. Well, Melissa, we've got one more question for you. So the passage ends with a summary of Moses' message in verses 15 to 20. And we get these culminating verses in verses 19 to 20. I'll read now. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Way more curses than blessings. (laughs) Choose life So that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him, for that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what seems to be laid out here is a view where obedience equals blessing and life. Disobedience equals curses and death. This is what biblical scholars often call the retributive principle. Do you think that that's a fair way to characterize the message of Deuteronomy?
2: I think it's accurate, but maybe a little bit reductive is what I would say. Deuteronomy, from a theological perspective is typical of biblical law in that it emphasizes good outcomes for following the law and poor or even disastrous outcomes for, for not following the law, breaking the law. But I think it's also good to nuance this a little bit and, and to view Deuteronomy as fundamentally a book of rhetoric, of persuasion. And like every good sermon, its purpose is to persuade the listeners, and in this case, to to follow the law. In some places, it almost sounds like Moses is pleading with the people, making very plain the consequences, so that maybe they can just avoid all of this curses nonsense, you know, which the book recognizes that kind of that's probably not going to happen. But it makes clear what's at stake um, and, and part of what's at stake is the survival of the identity of the people of God in this new land they're about to enter. So it's a book of persuasion. Uh, so, so choose life, don't choose death, make good choices. And the emphasis on choices having consequences. And, and, and again, as I've mentioned before, the book emphasizes human agency, the importance of community and taking care of your neighbor so that everyone flourishes.
1: Well, drawing on this genre, here's another ritual that we do, right? We always come to this at the end where we uh, draw on the genre of the blurb right which we find on the back of books and we see that scholars praise the book right on the back of it um is there something that you would like to recommend to our listeners melissa it could be a book it could be something else we like we at the beginning we said we've had duct tape wallets we've had horse mats we've had we've had books also (laughs) movies Um, tv shows all kinds of things so is there something you would like to recommend to uh, our listeners and to us
2: I do. And I'm going to stray wide outside of academics. I'm going to go with a cooking. I'm going with a cooking hack for anyone out there that (laughs) I like to cook. um, I'm always cooking stuff in the kitchen. And my favorite new thing that uh, was one of my Christmas gifts is bacon salt. It's amazing. Oh. There's little pieces Whoa. of bacon and like a rock salt. I've put this on a butternut squash soup that I made, kale <laughs> chips, anything almost, well, anything savory. But I don't know, even sweet things. It would be yeah. bacon salt. I am all about it in this season. All
0: right. All right. I love it. Bacon salt. That's I mean, excellent. most things taste better with bacon, but bacon <laughs> is hard to make, right? It so uh, if you can just I pour it out it. of a shaker. Yeah. And, but
2: be sure you keep it in the
0: fridge. Important too. Oh, okay. I wouldn't think to do that with bacon salt. So great advice. These are great recommendations and great guidance. And mostly great insight on uh, Deuteronomy 27 to 30. We're so grateful for your time um, sharing with us um, all that you have discovered in your research, digging into these ancient texts and how they illuminate the book. Of Deuteronomy, and to you, our listeners we 're grateful to you for listening, as we mentioned at the top of the show, one of our witch rules is to finish by asking for one of those ratings, but you know even more than the ratings, just telling someone that you know about the show uh, if you found it helpful, they may find it helpful as well, and we do appreciate that if, if you take the time to do that we 're not going to you know curse you if you don 't or anything but they right. might avoid the curse, so. <laughs> <laughs> so well, thanks again, Melissa.
2: Thank you so much, Ronnie and Will. This is super fun. Great conversation. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Samford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kines are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow
0: travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zellner, and the team in the Samford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.